Welcome to a, a very special edition of Addictions Edited. Uh, today I'm going to be talking to uh, Professor Gabriella Fisher, the head of the addiction team in the Department of Psychiatry and Psychotherapy at the Medical University of Vienna. Uh, Professor Fisher also has an affiliation to the Centre of Public Health Addiction Research. Uh, Professor Fisher is going to be uh, giving the Society Lecture at this November's SSA conference, so I'm delighted to be able to chat in advance of that. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, uh, Professor Fisher. So you have uh, spent a substantial part of your career focusing on human rights um, and drug use, uh, and your lecture in, in November is going to focus on this as well. Uh, what was it that first uh, interested you in uh, working in this area? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, it's, a, it's a good experience uh, talking in advance about the topic from November. Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, replying to your question, what, what, what's the underlying basis? What made me focus in the human rights? Uh, there are many, many UN human rights treaties who actually apply to psychiatry. And... Uh, very often, you know, we have to face the issue that substance use disorder are treated on the one hand side and psych psychiatric disorders on the other side, which um, uh, does not make a lot of sense. Policy-wise, of course, how the development started, it made a lot of sense because, for example, in, 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 in Germany or Austria, in, um, it was the history like uh, I would say in quote drug addiction was too dirty you know psychiatrists did not want to deal with it so first the field started with social work pedagogical support and I would say in the last two decades more and more science went into addiction research and it started to become more and more attractive also to psychiatrists which might not directly uh, rely to the sit situation in, in Great Britain. Uh, but um, I would say similar facts I see in many other European countries. And when, we, um, when I did my psychiatric um, training, partly in the United States, uh, I also faced the issue that there was a kind of hierarchy in psychiatry, it was kind of much more fashionable to, uh, dealing with eating disorder like bulimia, anorexia, affective disorder. And then it was not um, it was not so attractive anymore, getting enough doctors um, uh, affiliated to schizophrenia or to drug addiction. And this actually was maybe I would say 30 years back when I realized uh, that's a human rights issue because people with drug use disorder or substance use disorder, how we call it now, that's a very severe psychiatric disorder and the human rights apply to them. And if we, if we have problems like uh, getting adequate state of the care uh, diagnosis and treatment for them, we have to try to look into human rights treaties. And this was actually the, the beginning why I started to uh, look into all the human rights uh, treaties who are relevant for the disorder and why I started to, uh, to do teaching, research, advocacy, uh, not only looking into the biology or the social uh, 
aspects of substance use disorder, but also looking into the human rights aspect. You mentioned that that there are several uh, you know, human rights treaty, treaties that are that are relevant to addiction. Do any of these um, specifically mention uh, drug use and addiction in them? It, it's it's very interesting what you are asking because very often firsthand we face the problem that if we keep seeing patients and say, listen, you do have a severe substance use disorder, they say, well, it's not a disorder, it's my fault because I am using substances. So it's very often we need to explain to patients that they suffer on a chronic disorder. And if the patient does not understand that it's a disorder, who needs medical, social, psychological assistance, there's no way to help them. And therefore, um, one of the key human rights treaties is the CRPD. It's the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And if we keep addressing this, very often our clientele says, oh, I don't have a disability. But if you look into the, the, the short definition, it refers to persons with disabilities, include those who have long-term physical mental, intellectual, and sensitive impairments, which in interaction with various barriers may hinder their full and effective participation in society on an equal basis with others. And that's basically, I think there is no doubt that if you talk about substance use disorder, that we, we have to deal with a mental disorder. And it's doubtless that the vast majority of cases has a chronic course. So this, uh, so, so you say about kind of, you know, we're spending time uh, persuading uh, people who use drugs that, 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 this, that this particular treaty applies to them and, and that this means that they have rights. Is, do you also have to spend time explaining to kind of states and policymakers that, that this applies? How, how universally accepted is it that this applies to people who use drugs? Well, exactly, that's, that's what you're pointing out. We explain to the patients, but we address it to the state because the individual states signed the optional protocol, signed it and ratified it. And in the preparation for our conversation, of course, UK also signed uh, the ratified um, convention and the protocol, which means it's applicable. And... Um, each country should implement human rights commissions who monitor this. And if these commissions, and I've been heading such a commission in Austria, uh, these, uh, these, these members look into the situation of addiction clinics, psychiatric clinics. They look how they're, whether the treatment is based on the human rights standards. And these results are going to be addressed to the states and the state have to reply to it. So it's a, on an individual basis, it's important for the, for, the, uh, for the patients who know this because there is also an option to do an individual complaint to a commission. But on the, uh, on the structural level, it has to be and it needs to be addressed towards the state and for example, you know, there are, I've been in some countries where there were still waiting lists. Waiting lists are unacceptable in centralized uh, developed countries. Of course, if you face the reality, uh, there are different cares in different parts of the world. 
but this is applicable for UK, this is applicable for, for Austria, for many, for all European countries, that financial complaints is not justification of having violated human rights aspects. And like the, the CRPD is probably the most central one, what is to, to be applicable. There are many others who actually uh, uh, deal with uh, the voluntary aspect, the right of full information, and also the right of having the exact state-of-the-art um, medication and psychosocial support. We face in Europe, in individual countries, that some of the medication is not going to be paid. This is unacceptable because, for example, this is in the, in the Convention on Social, Cultural and Economic Rights. It's clearly defined. Um, let's see, it's um, the paragraph. It's, it's, it's clearly designed in the Article 15 that individuals have the right to have administered the state-of-the-art treatment. So it's very helpful, but it's helpful on, on uh on addressing it towards state authorities. So, so these kind of uh, the, these international treaties that uh, that outline certain expectations that people can have who are receiving treatment for for drug use disorders. Um, who who enforces their their compliance? Is, is there uh, is, is there a kind of international body that that goes round to governments and says, look, you signed to this. But but you know you've got waiting lists or you're not paying it um, and then so I suppose it's a two part question who who does that kind of auditing and and what kind of um, what power do they have to compel uh, governments to change? Well, you know um, um, there is an international body which is actually placed uh, in Geneva. It's the CPT. It's called the CPT. It's controlling. There, this is a commission. What can come to uh, psychiatric facilities, can come to detention centers, to prisons, and many places with international members and the countries have to provide access. So this is the international body. But as I was pointing out, if you look at the convention um, on the rights on persons with disabilities, UK has ratified the convention and the protocol. And very often scientists and policymakers in the, in the substance use community don't even know about this instrument. As if a, if a state has, uh, has uh, ratified the convention and the protocol, there must be a commission, a local commission. And this local commission has the right of visit uh, unannounced, um, in addition to expert, for example, myself, I'm joining other prevention mechanism, which is called the, 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 the national uh, body is the national prevention mechanism, where these commissions are, uh, are, are located. And I joined in the past, for example, often Switzerland to have an external expert um, looking with different, different distance and different uh, point of view on the issues and their report has to be filed. And it's, for example, it's very important also for, for the multi-professional team of institution because very often they are burned out. We do know this in the addiction field, like I'm in the very big university body 
And of course, if you have a budget, there is constant fight between cancer department, between uh, uh, heart disease department and psychiatry. And of course, and we know this, that the lobby in psychiatry is not as good as we do have it in oncology, cancer research, and so on. So it's, a, it's not an equal uh, fight we, uh, we, we participate. So it can be very, very helpful just using the tool. And if, if this is addressed to the state, the state have to go back to the individual bodies. For example, in UK, it would be NHS or whoever runs a unit. And they would need to justify why are there waiting lists, why psych psychological care is not available, why medication is not available, why, uh, why is not the exact, for example, psychiatric diagnosis. We do know that uh, in the majority of cases, we have an underlying psychiatric disorder. So if you only focus on the substance itself, it might not stay, it's very likely or it's unlikely that the, the person is stabilized on it. And so it goes from the national prevention mechanism with the different uh, members of such a commission, they visit uh, unannounced uh, institutions, uh, clinics, they look after the individual uh, items, uh, how the human rights situation is met by the institution. For example, I give another example, very often trauma gets along, gets, goes along with uh, substance use disorder. And we have the issue of the Istanbul protocol. The Istanbul protocol defines that if there is a woman after exposure to individual or structural trauma, the woman has the right of being seen first by female staff. And not only in the, in the Department of Substance Use Disorder or Addiction Clinic, continuously, if this person needs to go to uh, gynecology and so on and so forth. So it's very important that the requirement of an Istanbul protocol is known to the staff. And therefore, it's very important not only educating in depth the standards, of addiction treatment, it's very important also to include the human rights aspect. Um, a lot, a lot of your research, actually, a lot of your your work is focused on um, on gender and sex in relation to uh, addiction, both epidemiology and treatment. Um, what what do you view as the the most pressing issues uh, um, in this area for equality at the moment? I would say uh, the most important aspect is to take into account that there are significant sex and gender differences in the way of being inducted to drugs, how, how is the consumption pattern with drugs, and how is the comorbidity, and also how is the accessibility. As, uh, addiction is still a, a dominantly male uh, uh, issue, despite the fact that women are actually uh, uh, chasing the figures of males, so it's that the, the gap is getting closer, but it's important to, uh, we, we keep in the human rights aspect, we keep talking about the positive discrimination that it, despite the lower epidemiological figures, we have to provide environment for them. And um, we do know that uh, uh, 
confidentiality and privacy seems to be a very important indicator for the for the treatment continuation whether you can provide privacy and uh, um, and professionalism at the first contact it's much more important for females than for males if male decide well i need some treatment now they're not so sensitive towards uh, the atmospheric situation at the beginning and um, the most sensitive issue of course is uh, is pregnancy or the or the 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 period as long as women are in a childbearing age this, despite the fact that the majority of time women are spending uh, if they live long enough outside the, the period of um, uh, uh, life uh, childbearing age but uh, in this aspect, it's very important to have an interdisciplinary multi-professional team. And it's also important uh, to have to liaison very, very nicely with street work, with harm reduction units, in order to, to offer family planning, which is first place uh, very important uh, to try to structure not being on, um, on too long on too many drugs when you decide to having a baby. And on the other hand, it's a uh, it's very counterproductive if somebody comes in with substance use disorder being pregnant for 12 weeks or 10 weeks, and then somebody is uh, very serious and complaining and so why, why didn't you pay better attention? 50% of the population does not know about their pregnancies before week 10. So why to expect from psychiatric sick persons that they should know it better, you know? even also taking into account that drugs are interfering with the menstrual cycle. So I think it has to be very important to have an empathetic uh, uh, approach and try to, uh, to involve them in a multi-professional uh, care in order to, uh, to, provide the, to provide the best outcome for the, for the fetus. Yeah, you've, you've also sp spoken about um, the impact of research, so the impact of research into treatment, um, and, and you've commented before that it, that research of, research is often geared towards medicine as applied to men. Um, do you think that this situation has improved, um, and, and how do you think what needs to happen for that situation to be improved further? I think it has improved in um, in such extent as uh, it's uh, it's named. It's there, people realize, but uh, other than this, uh, I would say there is, a, we would love to have more improvement, to have more personalized medicine, to look much more into uh, comorbidities, to look into the underlying psychiatric morbidity like looking in, in males, looking into the diagnosis of ADHD, which has a very high prevalence and continuously afterwards, males start using substances very early, very intensively in order to cope with their dopamine deficiency of the attention deficit disorder. The same means we have to look carefully in the spectrum of affective disorders which is, uh, is about as double in females than it's in male. 
very often phobic structures, anxiety disorder are underlying and the consecutive substance use disorders is on top. What, what goes for both genders, we have to pay much more attention in the way of uh, uh, preventive medicine. How is the family genetic pattern? We do know that there's a very strong uh, genetic heritability. So this should actually strengthen the involvement of family doctors because they usually know what ones in families to, to start early on with primary prevention and not just jumping in in the curative uh, medicine. So we need to focus much more on that, but I would warn, I'm not um, a supporter of, uh, of only topic, having the topic of um, female substance use disorder. It has to be the sex and the gender differences. It has to be looked into the both of the differences and what both uh, sexes share. And I think it's the same. We have to attract uh, female and male health professionals into this topic. And it should not be an exclusively female's issue. I would say one exception would be like in some of the countries we see uh, trauma-specific wards, which are really based like uh, women are much more exposed uh, to a single trauma, whereas males are much more exposed to, to mass trauma. Again, with a focus and there it can be important to have a really uh, sex-specific approach towards therapists as well. So, so you've, done, you've done quite a lot um, of international work, which you kind of uh, spoke to there um, with the UNODC and uh, WHO. Uh, you know, in among, it's probably fairly easy to find examples of, of bad practice, but are there, are there any countries that are really leading the way in, uh, um, in sex and gender equality and, and in, in, in having those discussions in terms of policy and treatment provision? Well, you know, WHO and even more UN, I, mean, I would say UNODC mostly is really much uh, depending on the request by the member countries. So topics at meetings or at educational tracks are chosen based on desires of member countries. And if one is uh, like, for example, for the pregnancy issue, Norway has been taking the lead for many, 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 many years. Um, I also would say that uh, there is going on a lot in basic science. What's equally important look into animal studies because that's the basic gives us information on medical um, on medication response. Uh, this is, uh, of course, I would see a, a lot of um, uh, basic research done in the United States. Also because the research grants are pretty much directed towards special topics and also towards sex and, and gender differences. If you do, for example, pregnancy studies, it's something what you need to you need to be very very patient because you have to work very very long until you have enough the the, 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 the sizes are the numbers are enough in order to uh, have a, a strong enough power. Um, interesting studies, uh, but I think it's very interesting that that you point this out. It needs to be focused on this because one of my priorities would be the somatic comorbidities in males and females. 
substance use disorders, because these differs a lot. We see like hip replacement very early, but what makes the differences of malnutrition, different hormones towards um, somatic disorder? Yeah, um, so, so looking at those kind of differences between countries, I think it's really interesting to hear about, about Norway. Um, there, there are, there are, there are many countries where um, uh, human rights, I suppose, are, are different. Uh, you've, you've, you've talked before about um, like coercive sanctions, I suppose, in, in forced treatment studies, and I, like, from an international and a human rights uh, treaty perspective, how do you begin to uh, dissuade countries from from notions such as like coercive sanctions and you know, and even even bigger uh, human rights um, abuses such as such as those in the Philippines. How do you how do you engage uh, leaders and governments in in those discussions? I would say this is this is uh, probably the strength of UNODC because um, looking into all these member countries, I think it's um, it it has to be addressed very very carefully and. Uh, there are guidelines and uh, the standards uh, of guidelines are, of course, voluntarily. It's very, very important. Also, as a psychiatrist, I see very often patients who are so high loaded with drugs that you might think that they don't have anymore any free will to decide what's good or what's bad for them. But uh, coercion by law can only be done as long as a person is not able to judge this. So this can be necessary in order to protect him or herself uh, against um, deadly overdosing or, or accidents for a very short time with a clear psychiatric uh, assessment and under the uh, aspect that no better solution is possible. And this, in a, this has to be, the court has to be notified, and then a patient's advocate has to be notified within 24 hours in order to uh, to prevent forced treatment. This would be actually the standard we know from from the psychiatric field. And substance use disorder is part of psychiatry. We do not deal differently with uh, compared to, to psychosis. But what you are referring to that there are some countries where still coercive treatment is, is implemented. The only way, uh, to my point of view, is increase the, the, the education in involving different stakeholders of a country. And of course, showing the science. We have, we have one addiction like opiate addiction yeah, we are really blessed having a having medication which does not harm the body, which does not harm the cells. We would be very happy happy having equivalent medication for alcohol use disorder, which has a much higher prevalence and causes much more uh, uh, damage to the public health. Not only talking to the about the individual and the immediate family but also talking about um, related car accidents, for example, and uh, violence. So the only way of, of, of uh, improving is, is more and more education. Wonderful. Uh, more education, uh, a good note to finish on. Uh, Professor Gabriella Fisher, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
Thank you so much. Looking forward to coming uh, to Bristol in November. 